Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open your Bibles, if you haven't, to Luke chapter 8. We have the privilege this morning of returning again to our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If you are newer with us, um, it is our habit to sequentially work through portions of Scripture, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sometimes even word by word. And because what drives us as a church is the Word of God, especially in a day of so many fleeting thoughts and voices and opinions, um, the only word that has any eternal lasting significance is God's Word, and so we devote our time every single Sunday to the study of this Word. It is that sole source and final authority for truth, and so as I typically pray, we seek to submit our minds and our hearts every single week to this task of seeing what God has said. And so we've been working through the Gospel of Luke for a long time, about two and a half years at this point, and so we come this morning officially to the eighth chapter. We will be taking a look at a very short but I hope helpful passage. We're going to be in verses one through three this morning, and so before setting our minds to these words, let me read them for you. Again, that's Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and this is a transition section in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen a couple of these so far, and so this is yet one more. Here's what Luke records under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, And soon afterwards, he, Jesus, began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who is called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Well, it was a a number of years ago at this point that um, Lydia, my wife, and I got up early on a particular day and drove about an hour and a half north to submit ourselves to the scrutiny of the North American Mission Board, the scrutiny of a church planning assessment team by the North American Mission Board. The North American Mission Board is the church planting wing of the Southern Baptist Convention. And this was a very full day of intense questioning and interviews by people who sought to dig deep into just about every aspect of our life and our marriage and our theology and philosophy of ministry, those kinds of things. And so every planter and their wife, if they're wanting to receive funding, has to essentially be interrogated for several hours by an assessment team. And so it was a very long and exhausting day. You're pretty well spent and talked out by the end of it. And so I had to give several presentations on my philosophy of church planting, give all kinds of demographics and statistics for the location that I was looking to plant, which of course was here in Milwaukee. And so it was a very full sort of 360 assessment where they're trying to measure uh, to the best that they can the, the health and the goals of various planters. And one of the things that they were most interested in, and it was sort of the question was, what was my plan and strategy for engaging a diverse community? And therefore, my short and long-term strategy for building a, quote, multi-ethnic church. And my answer, three words, preach the gospel. That was the extent of the profundity of my answer. Simply preach the gospel, regardless of age, race, socioeconomic status, Jesus Christ has come to save the sinner. And so preaching the gospel, in my view, is entirely sufficient. But as you can imagine, that answer was entirely insufficient. And not because they believe that the gospel was insufficient to save, but because it is sort of pragmatically insufficient to achieve 
a diverse community of saved people. And so while we scored very high in the assessment and were overall obviously given the green light to go and plant a church, this was an area of concern for them. And because, as you know or can imagine, this is what is really hot right now in church planning. Um, it really is the discussion in the church at large, but certainly in church planting. In fact, many years ago, it was all about how to build a homogenous church plant um, or a, a church plant that could target a singular or very specific group of people. And of course, out of that arose all the different notions on how to make your service and your music and your preaching and your programs customized enough to reach a singular unchurched demographic. But now it is no longer that. The goal in the touchdown has completely shifted. Rather, it's all about how to reach as many different kind of people as you can and become the most diverse as you can, and specifically, racially diverse. In fact, not all that long ago, the primary question at church planter gatherings for pastors was, so how many numbers are you running on the weekend? Uh, that is to say, how big is your church? And how many baptisms are you doing? Those kinds of things. But now the question is no longer how big is your church, but how diverse is your church? That is the question to now assess the supposed health and effectiveness of your ministry in other words, it always comes down to creative strategy. The goals and therefore efforts might change, usually, uh, in my view, following suit to the culture and subcapacity. During the rise of feminism, it was all about diversifying your leadership to include more women. That was the touchdown. Right now, it's racial diversity. That's the goal. No doubt it'll change again within the next decade or two. But whatever the goal, the, the question is, so what is your strategy what is your ecclesiological technique to achieve whatever it is that is on everybody's mind? Whatever the case, my answer to the question of just preach the gospel, and which, by the way, has always been considered short-sighted, truncated, far too simplistic of an approach, is an answer that has been shaped in many ways by simply examining the ministry in the life of Jesus, and certainly the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You might receive scorn with an answer like that, but the passage here this morning is going to show us that you are in very good company if that is your approach, because that is exactly what Jesus himself did. That was the plan and strategy of our Lord to build his church. There was no demographic study. There was no class that he took on cultural hermeneutics or cultural exegesis. Rather, his plan was to preach the gospel and proclaim the kingdom of God. It is a sad thing that so many seminaries these days have abandoned Greek and Hebrew exegesis. That is the skill of determining the meaning of the text for things like cultural exegesis. But I think this is a very formative passage for discovering the nature of true biblical ministry. I had originally planned to just sort of tack these verses on to the beginning of the next passage, but after getting into it this week and studying it, I realized I did want to devote some time to this, and the longer that I meditated upon it, the more that I began to see here some very important principles for true biblical ministry. This is, as I said, a transition passage in many ways, but there are some observations re revealed here that I felt important to try and draw out for us. And so I don't expect this to be a very long or deep sermon this morning, but I do hope that it will help you better understand why we do what we do at this church or perhaps why we don't do what we don't do. In fact, this was a very fascinating passage for me personally because it shows, in fact, how Christ actually functioned in a very narrow and limited and precise way to accomplish what had become a global transcultural, transgenerational movement that's been in existence for 2,000 years. And so this is an important thing for us as a church that is sitting in the middle of a tremendously diverse, complex metroplex where, frankly, ecclesiological strategies could be virtually endless. And so in a day of countless books and techniques and so-called experts that have developed ministries for the purpose of reaching the widest possible audience and having the widest possible impact and designed to be both diverse culturally and racially, designed to be 
eclectic and synergistic and designed to be culturally connected and complex and far-reaching, where, again, endless amounts of hours and money and plans and strategies and various ways of communicating are designed to influence as many people as possible and built to meet this massive matrix of needs, I find a passage like this very helpful and very, very freeing. And primarily because what many of those approaches seem to leave out, which should boggle the mind of any faithful student of Scripture, is that God almost never works in accord to conventional wisdom. And that is not to say that there is no value in those sort of things, but what always seems to be forgotten is the utter backwards nature of God's kingdom. And so what we have before us this morning is some insight into how God never seems to do anything in a manner consistent with what might seem to be the pragmatic way. And the reason for that is because every aspect of any true ministry, hear this, has already been determined in the providence of God. Let me say that again. Every aspect of any true ministry has already been determined in the providence of God. In fact, that is the main idea for this morning. This is a concept that is confirmed for us by Paul as well, who writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that well-known text. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But why? Well, for this reason, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? Well, for good works. And then here it is, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, every good deed and every good work for the cause of Christ in your life has already been established. It has already been determined for you. Not only does God choose you to be saved before the foundations of the world, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, but he has also established and prepared every good work that you will walk in before the foundation of the world. And so if you can understand that, even in your own personal evangelism and your missional efforts, and I think you're going to feel a certain sense of freedom to just be busy being faithful to some very few but very simple principles. And there are four such principles in this passage this morning, and so my plan is to simply walk through these as we work our way through this text, this transitional passage, and so I'm just going to try and draw these out as we make our way through. But let's take a look at the text and see what we can learn, see what we can learn from what happened here in the life and the ministry of Jesus. So number one, notice first of all, we see that the sphere or location of Jesus' ministry was determined, beginning of verse one, the sphere of Jesus' ministry was determined. Luke writes, and soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. So what is the principle here? Well, if you want to be most effective and have the greatest influence for the cause of the gospel, then be busy inhabiting the places in which God has right now placed you. Be busy inhabiting the places in which God has right now placed you. Notice Luke says that soon afterwards, well, soon after what? Well, soon after that event that we saw with the prostitute in the Pharisee's home, end of chapter 7, but soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another. Now, the point to understand with this is that he is restricting himself to the region of Galilee. You have to understand the context. We can read statements like that and think that he's just going all over the place, but the truth of his ministry is that for the first significant portion of his three years of ministry, he limited himself to the region of the Galilee. In fact, you'll have to think back, but from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 9 in verse 51, which is what we're still in, this entire record is an account of his ministry in Galilee. And so if you can remember, the Galilee was the northern portion of Israel, sort of near the top, and so Galilee was not at all the main area of the nation. Certainly wasn't a popular place, there'd be no reason to go there, there were no major cities or places of major industry. In fact, Galilee was just a series of small, sort of self-contained little towns and villages. People were considered exceedingly uneducated. They, they were poor, they were out of touch, they were considered to be behind the times, sort of backwards and hillbilly, if I could put it that way. 
fact, you might remember from Acts chapter 2 and verse 7, the day of Pentecost, the people were shocked by the apostles who were speaking in tongues or in known languages. And they begin to question there in amazement, as the text states, by saying, so how is it that they know our language? For are they not all Galileans? This would have been rather bizarre, and primarily because it was well known that anyone from Galilee was uneducated. They were nowhere near the spotlight or the mainstream of Jewish culture. There was no way that they would have been taught languages and various dialects, and so they were the lowly, the uninfluential. And so it is very significant that this becomes then, therefore, the primary place of Jesus' ministry. And it's not that he just spent a little bit of time there, or he was just sort of passing through, but this is where he spent at least a year and a half to two years of his three-year ministry. And so right away, the point is that we see this incredible backwards nature of how God chooses to work. If he was going to be influential and start a nationwide movement, let alone a global movement, you think that he'd at least try and get himself to Jerusalem. You have to go to the center of the nation, that place that was the major spot for religious influence. And if he was actually going to make this thing global, the question is, why not Athens? I mean, if he wanted to turn the nation upside down, he'd at least have to get to Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of all Jewish life. But if he had plans to spread this thing to the ends of the earth, which we know was his plan and goal, then he should be working hard to get himself to Athens, which was at this point the very center of the world in terms of shaping culture. And so if you and I were going to try and do something like this, then we'd be plotting a very different approach. We'd be raising dead people, not out in the hill country of Nain, but on Mars Hill. I mean, if you wanted to capture the attention of the world, then you have to get out of Capernaum. We wouldn't be wasting our time with fishermen in the northern part of this little nation called Israel. We wouldn't be spending our time with prostitutes and tax collectors. We certainly wouldn't be preaching on the sides of hills out in the middle of nowhere. We'd at least be in the synagogues and in the marketplaces, but all the while setting our eyes on the halls of the Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers. In fact, Mars Hill in Athens is exactly where you'd want to be. And because that is where the people spent their time in hearing and telling of something new, as Luke records in Acts 17, verse 21. And so if you wanted to start a religious movement or create market disruption, so to speak, then in terms of the philosophical and religious thought of the day, then at some point you had to get out of the north, you'd have to get yourself out of Israel, and you'd have to get yourself into the mainstream of Greco-Roman culture. And yet Jesus turns this world on his head, think about this, without ever stepping out of Israel. And where he spent the majority of his time in this secluded area of Galilee. And so again, this is upside down from how most people think in terms of missional or missiological strategy to spend your time in the secluded north of this nothing little nation. That's just not a good place to begin. And yet here he is going from nothing little town to nothing little town with time running increasingly short. And because the time of the cross is rapidly approaching, three years is not a long time. We've been alive as a church for three years. But this is how the nature of God's kingdom operates. And what's even more interesting is that there is no mention at all of him going into any synagogues. In fact, from here on out, we're going to start to see a shift in his approach. In fact, you almost never see him enter a synagogue again. Remember in chapter 4, he started traveling from town to town, and whenever he would enter a particular town, he goes straight to the synagogue to begin his teaching. Starting here in chapter 8, you almost never see him do that again. Rather, he goes from home to home. He goes from hillside to hillside. In fact, as we'll see next time, that is actually a form of judgment on the religious system and the religious leaders and institution who at this point have utterly rejected him. But the point to understand for our purposes is that this is not how you would position yourself if you're planning to create some waves And if you're planning to begin a movement that is supposed to spread to the ends of the earth, 
And so the principle here, I think, if we can understand this, is that effectiveness for the gospel is not a function of strategy. It's not an issue of strategically posturing yourself to get into the biggest or the widest platform, but instead it's learning to be faithful within those spaces that God has providentially placed you. And because that is where the Father will most use you. In fact, when we try to move ourselves outside of those spaces, and that is when we become least useful and least influential for the causes of the kingdom, In fact, safe to say, Jesus would not have actually been effective in Athens. He would not have been effective in Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem is where they murdered him. And so what we see from the beginning is that Jesus' ministry takes place where the Father wanted him and among whom the Father wanted him. And so again, the idea is to be faithful where you are and among whom you are. For some of you, that is your workplace, that is your neighborhood, that is your family. For some of you, you are the only saved person in your family. We are quick to spread our eyes far and wide, but your effectiveness is limited in God's providence to those places in which he has sovereignly determined for you, in which he has placed you today. And I think that is a very freeing notion. Sometimes we feel the burden that we don't have to feel. For many of you, you are, though, the only gospel outpost, for example, in your neighborhood. You have the message, you hold the keys to the kingdom, that next time that you walk through your neighborhood, think about all those houses, think about all those people, think about all the families, young and old, that those houses represent, and then think about how you might be the only person in that entire area who possesses the message for eternal life. And there's burden there. It is the place where God has placed you, especially if you think about that that is your purpose You are likely the only one in that area with this message, with the message of salvation and redemption. So it is your responsibility because you alone possess that truth. You alone have the knowledge of eternal life. In fact, one of the things that I'm thankful for as I thought about this is that I think we officially have every suburb south of downtown represented in this church. We even got some downtown and north of downtown. And so it is our task to pick up this mantle and just keep spreading this message into the places that God has placed us, into the places that we inhabit. And so the key here is that to start where you are is the best place to begin because that is where God has put you. He has put you there in his divine providence and his divine purposes. And that is, in fact, a privilege, I think, if you think about it. Not only did he choose to save you among all the people, but he is also now determined to use you among all the people. And the weaker you are, the better, as we're going to see, because he always seems to use the weak. The kingdom is, again, this backwards reality is very upside down, and we're going to see that in just a little bit. But the first principle here is that the sphere and scope of your personal ministry has already been determined. Again, he has prepared good works for you beforehand that you might walk in them. So that is number one. Number two, the content of Jesus' ministry was determined. Second half of verse one, the content of Jesus' ministry was determined. Notice he was proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Now, here we see that his ministry was established in both form and substance, First of all, notice the form. It was through this vehicle of preaching. This idea of preaching is the word keruso. It's the idea of an official herald in the ancient world. These were hired figures or officials who would most often go into the center of a city or into the center of a marketplace and declare an official announcement on behalf of the king. They didn't have newspapers or things like social media, and so you needed somebody to do this. And so their singular task was to declare something official on behalf of the king in terms of the kingdom. And so they were an official messenger. They, they didn't debate. They didn't engage in dialogue with the people. Frankly, the opinions and responses of the people didn't matter. Rather, his only job was to stand up and faithfully relay a very particular message. In fact, he was forbidden by threat of his life to say anything different. Couldn't say anything more. He couldn't say anything less. Rather, they were entrusted to faithfully communicate something specific, something very definitive from on high. And so this is what Jesus was doing. He was traveling around and and heralding something of the eternal kingdom. 
In fact, that second term there, translated as preaching, fills us out a little bit. It's the term euangelizo, from which we get the term and idea of evangelize. It's literally to declare, but declare good news. The idea of good is, in fact, built into the very term. But the point here is that, notice, the form of his ministry was one of preaching. He, he was a heralder. He was a declarer of something very specific. That is very important. But then second, notice the content of his preaching. Content of his preaching. Here it is stated as the kingdom of God. That is a now technical phrase in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, I would commend you to Matt Henry's sermons on the kingdom of God from his study in the book of Acts, and because both Luke writes both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and so he uses it in the same way. But essentially the phrase kingdom of God comes down to the idea of both salvation and redemption. If you had to sum it up, which of course is what makes it good news, and again, I've talked a lot about that from Isaiah chapter 61 and some of those Old Testament passages prophesying of the coming kingdom. But the point here is to understand that the nature of his ministry was something limited, It was limited in the sense that it was limited in both its form, which was preaching, but also its content, namely the kingdom of God. And so you'll notice that he didn't come here preaching social change. He didn't come as a political or a community organizer. He didn't come as a manager of programs. He didn't come as a revolutionary. Rather, he was primarily a preacher, and the content of his message was the kingdom of God. And that, again, is very important for us to observe, especially in a day of so much pressure on the church to be doing anything and everything except that simple task of faithfully preaching the gospel, which, as you trace it through the book of Luke and and the book of Acts, is something that is synonymous with the kingdom, that to preach the kingdom of God is to preach the gospel. People like to make a difference, but there is no true distinction. And so in terms of uh, kingdom effectiveness, this is the method that the Father has determined to use. Seems at times weak. You know that from your own personal experience. Can feel rather impotent. But Jesus understood that this is what the Father determined for him. In fact, as the old adage goes, God had only one son and he made him a preacher. You see that explicitly in chapter 4 and verses 43 through 44. Preaching was the Father's divine purpose for him, and according to that text, one of the main purposes for why Jesus came. It was to preach the news of the kingdom. And so to spend your days as a follower of Christ on some other effort in the name of the kingdom is when the Father himself, I think, will perhaps render you ineffective for the causes of the gospel, for the causes of the kingdom, I realize that the idea of just preach the gospel is mocked and seen in many ways as entirely simplistic these days, it seems. But if that is what you do, then on the basis of texts such as this and many others, I think you are in very good company. You stand in that long line of faithful heralds going all the way back to our Lord himself. For whatever reason, the church at large, especially in the U.S., always thinks that it needs to be doing more needs to compete with the culture on things like social issues. And this is nothing new, by the way. This has always been around. It seems like it's new, but it's not. It has always ebbed and flowed throughout the history of Christianity. In fact, one prominent pastor that you all would know well said not all that long ago that the culture is somehow stealing our, meaning the church, the culture is somehow stealing our, quote, inheritance, Meaning the culture is robbing us of our eternal reward because the culture is addressing the issue of social justice faster and better than the church. Just this bizarre sort of mindset and presumption that thinks that our task is something far greater or something more than simply being faithful heralds of a humble message. And yet far and away, that was the primary work of Jesus himself and, subsequently, his apostles. That is very clear as you trace it out through the book of Acts. So principle number one, the scope or sphere of your ministry has been determined. Number two, the form and content of your ministry has been determined. But then number three, notice the people to whom you are to minister has been determined for you. And there is some overlap here with the first one, but notice the kinds of people that Jesus was intentional to surround himself with. And again, this entire passage drips with 
seeming weakness. That is what should stand out to you. It is backwards and counter to what seems to be the pragmatically wise or strategically effective way. And so notice end of verse 2. He states, and the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's steward, and Susanna. Now, the picture being painted here is that Jesus spent his time with a very select few, and we're going to see that that is absolutely true. It'll be confirmed for us next time, but Jesus was extremely intentional to pour his time into just a few, just a few seemingly weak people. And think about this, but he spent three years going deep with just a few faithful men, 12 in particular, minus Judas. And then within those 12, he, had, he was even more intentional with his inner three, namely Peter, James, and John. And so again, these were fishermen, these were tax collectors, these were political agitators, these were not well-positioned or influential people. These were uneducated and unknown people. And so what Jesus understood from the beginning was that if he was going to have a lasting impact, he didn't need to inspire and sort of motivate the masses and the crowds. Rather, he needed to disciple and shape a very select few, which, of course, sets up the pattern for the church. In fact, you'll remember that Jesus called his church in the Great Commission to make disciples. That is to say that he didn't call them to make converts, He didn't call them to inspire people. He didn't want them to become skilled and affecting and influencing the world. Rather, his call was to make disciples. And that is what he modeled then for three years. And so you don't need people who are excited. You don't need people who are motivated. You don't need people who have a lot of skill or or social capital. Rather, you need a few people who have been shaped and compelled by a few simple eternal truths, namely who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. That is what you need. And so Jesus spends his three years not going as far and wide as he can to the most influential places to gather, of course, the most skilled or influential people. Rather, he pours his life into a few who will, in turn, turn around and do the same. And so he understood that the way that he was going to expand the kingdom was not through addition, that is, by drawing a lot of people to himself, but rather through the concept of multiplication, which happens by making disciples who will, in turn, make disciple-making disciples. And so he understood that the kingdom was to expand through compound multiplication rather than simple addition, which, if you're going to change the world, is how it has to happen. And so what strikes me here, personally, is that as Jesus travels around, it was not so much about the places that he was going to or how many people he was reaching. That is not what Luke here seems to be emphasizing. Rather, Luke is careful to include this detail here that the 12 were with him. That is to say that wherever he went and whatever he did, these 12 followed him. They watched him. They were with him. They lived with him. Which, of course, means that discipleship is far more than sitting down and going through a book with somebody. It is the act of shaping and teaching people by allowing them to watch you on mission. That is true discipleship, allowing them to watch how you live and interact with people and let them see the decisions you make and the priorities you have or how you conduct your life. You are to let them see how you go about your evangelism and your missional efforts. And so Jesus was almost never alone, and he was very intentional about that. Remember, discipleship is not just the idea of teaching propositional truth. Now, that is certainly part of it. That is a necessary part of it, but a massive part of discipleship is teaching and shaping people as you allow them to observe the outcome and the fruitfulness of your life. That is what affects people and shapes people. And so this was the strategy of Jesus. And again, what's interesting is the nature of the people that he surrounded himself with. Again, these were fishermen. These were tax collectors. These were 
political agitators. He didn't go for the wealthy. He didn't go for the societal or religious elite. Rather, he went for those outside the center of society, but so that he might mold them into that core through which he would plant his church. And so he was drawn, it seemed, to the weak. He was drawn to the ungifted. He was drawn to the uninfluential. From time to time, you'll see a major celebrity or an athlete make a profession of faith. And Christians always get all excited about this because they think that they can do some really great things because of their platform and the reach and the audience that they might have. But that is not really very consistent with the pattern of Jesus, the pattern for how he determined that the kingdom would truly expand. Jesus didn't pick the rich. He didn't pick the famous. He didn't pick the well-established people in various points of interest. Rather, he picked some very ordinary men. And these are men whom, as you go through the gospel, will doubt him. They will disappoint him. They will desert him. They will deny him. And so his discipling of them many times was no doubt frustrating. It was difficult. But that was the kind of person that he sought. He went for the weak and the unesteemed. Again, a commentary on that upside-down nature of the kingdom In fact, you see this all the more in how Luke is careful to include here this group of women. There's something thematic here that he's trying to bring out about how Jesus always associated with the wrong kinds of people if he was going to expand his purpose, if he was going to have a lasting impact. And so women, if you know, were not highly esteemed in this culture. That is the point to understand. In fact, Jewish men we begin each day in the synagogue by praying, literally, praise you, God, creator of heaven and earth, that you did not make me a Gentile or a woman. That was how a faithful Jewish man would begin his day. And so there was just this view of women that they were exceedingly inferior. In fact, in Jewish culture at large, the rabbis believed that women were actually incapable of receiving teaching and instruction regarding spiritual matters. In fact, there were actually formal laws that were put into the books that forbade a woman to be taught by a man in public, including her husband. In the secular Greek culture, men like Socrates and Aristotle and Demosthenes and other Greeks disdained having to teach women. In the Qumran community, which is where John the Baptist came from, it's well documented there as well that there was a very low view of women, and yet here is Jesus surrounding himself with them. And not only is he surrounding himself with women, but they are women of low repute. And so notice there's three of them here mentioned by Luke. You've got Mary Magdalene, who comes from the area of Magdala, which is why she's identified in the Gospels as Mary Magdalene. Notice she's a woman who is publicly known as having been possessed by multiple demons. And so again, if you're going to start a global movement, you don't do it with women, and certainly not with women who are known demoniacs. That's just not the kind of person that you want. You don't want her anywhere near you. You don't want her being identified at all with anything that you're trying to do. Second, you've got this woman named Joanna, who is identified by Luke here as the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's steward. And so in terms of Jewish society, this is also not somebody that you'd want on your team. Remember, Herod was that petty king. He was one of the authorities in Rome-occupied Israel. And so Chusa was essentially the keeper of Herod's estate. And so to have his wife associated with her ministry, that would have been a major strategic error, at least in terms of PR. It's just not a good idea to have the wife of an administrative official who was working for the cause of Rome to be dancing around your efforts. And so again, if he's trying to put together a team, he just seems to be consistently making the wrong decisions. And then finally, you've got Susanna. And she is my favorite in this list because we know absolutely nothing about her. This is, in fact, the only time that she is ever mentioned in the Bible, and she sits among this list of very unesteemed people. She has no legacy. We know nothing of her faith. We know nothing of her works. We have zero knowledge of 
what she may have accomplished for the Lord, how big or small her impact was. We know nothing of her. We know nothing of her discipleship. Rather, the only thing we know is that in some capacity, she was a humble, faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know nothing of her other than that she exists in the records of Holy Scripture to communicate that Jesus saves but then uses the outcast. He uses the sinner and so again, this was the MO of Christ. This is how he operated, always in weakness, always in ways that seemed backwards to a world driven by big and fast and exciting. And so the point again is that we see Jesus limiting himself to focus on just a few, just a, a few weak, seemingly shameful people. This was his ministerial focus. This was the center of his efforts. And so his plan was not to reach as many people as he could through addition and the gathering of many people to himself, but rather his strategy was multiplication by pursuing deep discipleship among those who seem weak, but then equipping them to go and do the same. And of course, we see them carry that out in the book of Acts as the gospel spreads with tremendous rapidity that is how you achieve a lasting impact. It's an impact that has eternal ramifications for many, many people. You, in fact, are beneficiaries of these 12 men. And so in a day of big churches and big personalities, I think that we should be very content in our weakness. We can be content even in our smallness if what our goal is is to have a deep impact on a few who will in turn be faithful to impact a few. That is the strategy. That is the plan of Jesus for his church. We are to reach a few who will in turn reach a few. And then finally, number four. Number four, we see that the means of Jesus' ministry was determined. Last half of verse three, even the means of Jesus' ministry was determined. He states that there were many others who were, get, who were contributing to their support out of their private means. It's very interesting that Jesus the God of the universe intentionally chose not to exploit his divine right to provide for himself. Rather, he willingly entrusted himself to the provision of the Father and specifically through the vehicle of other people, these people who would follow him. And so as he's gathering his disciples and gathering a following, these are the very ones who would provide for him. Remember, he's now a traveling itinerant preacher at this point, and so he's got 12 men with him at all times, men who he told to leave their jobs, leave their livelihood, and so he has to provide for them as well. And so instead of turning stones into bread, he models dependency upon the Father through the faithful contributions of other people. And even in this, he is intentional to teach his 12 what dependency of faith looks like. Again, that is a very weak thing to do. He doesn't raise support. He doesn't put on a fundraiser. He doesn't write a book and try and live off the royalties. Rather, he models a trust in the provision of the Father who will sustain all resources necessary for any faithful ministry. And so even his means of ministry has been determined for him. And there are a lot of applications to that. This is not just about money and physical provision. I think the principle here could be, or applies to anything necessary for ministry. Even in times of persecution, the Father is faithful to provide what you need. I think about Matthew chapter 10 and verse 19 that says, but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. Why? For it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. And so even your very words for ministry and testimony will be given to you. And so I think a principle here is that anything needed for faithful ministry in the service of Christ will always be provided. God is rich in resources to provide for any needs for the kingdom. And so even in this, no doubt these 12 were learning a very important lesson for all that was to come for them. He was getting them ready. He was preparing them these three years for that approaching day of Pentecost. And so this was the way of our Lord. This was the way of Jesus Christ in building his church. The kingdom, again, is an upside-down reality. He works through weakness. He works through backwards means. He 
defies all sense of rationality and strategy. When it seems right to go wise to go right, he goes left. When it seems probably to us prudent to add, he seems content to subtract. When we think that he should divide, he sees fit to multiply. And so it's just a, a great lesson, I think, on the nature of true ministry. I reflect often about how painful it was for Kenosha to lop off 40 to 45 people for us to go and plant a church here in Milwaukee, and yet almost the moment that we did that, he immediately backfilled us and then doubled them. And then meanwhile, we ourselves have more than doubled. And so he works through very strange, upside-down ways that if we are faithful, he is pleased to use us. He doesn't need us, but he will use us. And so just to close it out here, what is the takeaway of this passage? Well, to sum it up, the call of this passage is, so just be faithful. Just be faithful. Nothing deep, nothing complex for you this morning. Again, I almost just tacked this on to the beginning of next week's passage, but I felt compelled to draw some of these things out for us. It really is just a transition passage, but these are, I think, some helpful observations. Perhaps just in the position that I'm in, these kinds of insights are are precious to me personally, but every single one of these applies to anyone who would call themselves a Christian. And because if you've been redeemed, you have been redeemed for a purpose. And that purpose is that you might now be deployed in service to Christ. The great calling on your life is to now spend your days in service of the kingdom. We are to be a church that makes disciple-making disciples. That is our task. That is our divine calling. And so as we strive in faithfulness to that call, these are four principles that I think can make that a joyful, burden-lifting task for you. God knows you. He knows where he has put you. He has determined the fruit that your life shall bear And so it is a freeing thing, I think, if you just meditate upon this. God has determined the scope of your ministry. That is where he wants you and why he wants you there. None of you are at at this church by accident. None of you live where you do by accident or when you do by accident, which is some very good news for many of us who are trying to buy a house. We can free ourselves from the constant burden of needing to meet all the expectations of what the contemporary church is constantly trying to foist upon us. We have a very simple task and calling, and that is to preach the kingdom of God or preach the gospel. That is the form and content that your ministry is to take. We can free ourselves from the burden of thinking that we don't have enough skill or personality or social capital or charisma to have any kind of influence for the gospel. In fact, it's clear that the kind of person that Jesus most loves to use is the one who is weak. And then finally, anything that he calls us to do, he will always provide. He'll provide both the spiritual, the physical resources. He'll give you what you need. He'll give you boldness. He'll give you courage if that's what you need. In fact, when Jesus ascended in Matthew chapter 18, after giving that great commission, his departing word was what? That I will be with you to the ends of the age. It's literally, I will be with you each and every day. That is the promise given in the context, though, of, hear this, the Great Commission. There is a particular application of that promise. And so if you think about it, the only context then in which you are actually promised to receive anything that you may need is when you are on that path to faithfully carry out the Great Commission. In fact, the moment that you leave that road or you get apathetic on that task, then do not be surprised if provision in some way does not come for you, but as long as you are faithful to that calling, you have a promise, beloved, from on high. He will provide. And so the call of this passage is to just be faithful where you are in the confines, in the spheres in which God has placed you. If he chooses to expand your influence or use you in some unique way, then that is his business, but your business is to go deep with those whom God has given to you in your workplaces, in your school, in your family, That is where God has you because that is where he wants you. And then finally, let me just quickly conclude here by drawing your attention or saying something about what most impacted me personally about this passage by 
reminding you of this very unknown woman named Susanna. I think the greatest legacy that you could ever have is to spend your life preaching the gospel, but for the purpose of then dying and then being forgotten. That is the greatest legacy that you could ever have. Because when you die, the only one that matters promises that he will remember you. When Jesus hung on the cross in his final hours, that thief who hung next to him recognized Jesus to be who he said he was. And he cried out to Jesus to remember him. Chapter 23, verse 42, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What was his response? And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Doesn't really matter how big or small you are. What matters is that Christ remembers you. And because his remembrance is the only thing that matters. And so spend your life in service to him. Spend your life faithfully living out this great commission. That is the only thing that matters. Make disciples. And because he has determined that to be your lot if you are a saved person, that is the task divinely given, ordained over your life. He has determined the boundaries of your inhabitation, Acts 17. He's also determined your days, but he has also determined the scope and the nature of your personal ministry. And so your only job is to faithfully walk in obedience to that great calling and a calling that is a very privileged task. That is your commission. And so in a day of so many voices and opinions, may that be a very freeing truth to you. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend time in this word. I pray that by the power of the Spirit that you would help us to believe these things and truly live them in a simple yet radical way. In a world of so many ideas, this really is a freeing passage. Simple, it's straightforward, it provides a helpful model for us. And so I ask that in these days, as we seek to be a church that lives on mission for you, may this be our guide and source for how to do this, for how to live on mission in a manner that pleases you, in a manner that allows us, therefore, to be most used by you. I do know the burden for many in this room is to bear eternal fruit that lasts and brings glory to your name. And so I do pray that you would cause us to become fruitful and to remain fruitful, cause our efforts to multiply and accomplish that which you desire for us to accomplish in this city and in the various spheres of our influence. May you show yourself among us to be that one who truly is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works within us, as Paul writes. And so do you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.